This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, conversation with a researcher at the University of Arizona about a breakthrough in understanding the connection between estrogen and Alzheimer's disease. Hear a new story written by a second grader named Romeo about learning a lesson about wishes. And hear about the turn of the 20th century success of Oracle's Mountain View Hotel and its proprietors, William and Annie Neal. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This summer, the FDA approved the first new medication for treating Alzheimer's disease in 18 years. The development of the drug was made possible by research here at the University of Arizona, which investigated the connection between estrogen and reducing the risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Here to explain is Dr. Roberta Diaz-Brenton. She's the director of the Center for Innovation in Brain Science and a professor of pharmacology and neurology in the UA College of Medicine. I began by asking, with all the research being done on Alzheimer's disease, why did it take 18 years to make this breakthrough? So there are multiple on-ramps to Alzheimer's disease. There is, however, common pathology and one of those is the buildup of beta amyloid in plaques in the brain. The development of an antibody, a monoclonal antibody approach to removing those plaques has been in the works for many years, probably closer to 20 years. The latest approval is for that type of treatment of removing the beta amyloid plaque from the brain. So why so long? Well, I come back to the complexity. Even though there are common pathologies, the on-ramps are different. And our approach has been to address one of those on-ramps, why women are at greater risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Typically, people think because women live on average 4.5 years longer than men, and age is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, and while part of that may be true, what our research has shown is that it's not because women live longer than men, it's because the disease can start earlier in women and midlife in their late 40s, early 50s, when they undergo the menopausal transition. What is key in the menopausal transition that opens the door for Alzheimer's to become part of the pathology? The key that we have found is twofold. One is that there's an energy crisis in the brain. The brain is dependent upon glucose as its primary fuel. And estrogen promotes the conversion of glucose to energy, ATP in the brain. And that ATP energy is required for all functions of the brain, including learning, memory, executive function, decision-making, sleep, and the clearance and prevention of amyloid plaque from the brain. 
So what I'm understanding is that healthy levels of estrogen are actually a defense against the buildup of these amyloid plaques. Precisely. Maintaining estrogen action in the brain is a strategy to prevent Alzheimer's disease. It is not a strategy to treat the disease once the disease has taken hold. It's about preventing. So that's where some of the controversy has come in for estrogen or hormone therapy because it has been used in certain trials, not all, where women were 65 years or older and have been estrogen deficient for a decade or more. And in that particular study from the Women's Health Initiative, there were three women who were at the margins of normal. So in today's kind of clinical landscape, they would have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which is the earliest stage of Alzheimer's disease. So for those women, estrogen therapy was not beneficial, whereas women who had received estrogen therapy much earlier in another study in the Women's Health Initiative, there was a reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. In most of the women who received estrogen therapy after the age of 65, there was no benefit and there was no harm. So essentially, estrogen or hormone therapy is most efficacious for preventing development of multiple age-associated neurological diseases when it is administered during that menopausal transition, when women are symptomatic, like hot flashes, like sleep disturbance, like mild cognitive dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So when they're having those menopause-related symptoms, estrogen can actually be beneficial. And that's the time for women to consider estrogen therapy, not 15 years post-menopause. Our recent study showed that, indeed, when women were treated with estrogen or hormone therapy, there was a considerable reduced risk, 50 to 60% reduction in risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis and ALS. So it was keeping the brain a well-functioning brain. Isn't taking additional estrogen a common part of many women's supplemental routines? At one point, that was correct. And it, you know, hormone and estrogen therapy was very common. Once the Women's Health Initiative study came out showing that there were these three women who had developed Alzheimer's disease, the utilization of hormone therapy dropped precipitously by about 80%. Now, one of the other reasons why women elect not to receive hormone therapy is not the fear of you know, brain-related diseases, but in fact, their concern of breast cancer. So women have been in the position of having to choose between brain health and breast health. And we have, over the past several decades, really listened to women 
and gone back to our scientific research and asked the important question, can we protect the brain while also protecting the breast? And in fact, we have a clinical trial of a natural product that we call Phytoserm to address estrogen action in the brain while protecting breast health. And we're about to start that trial, um, well, in early 2022. I spoke with Roberta Diaz-Brenton, Ph.D., Director of the Center for Innovation in Brain Science and a Professor of Pharmacology and Neurology in the UA College of Medicine. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the power and the possibility of bringing their stories to life in any medium. Next, we'll hear I Wish We Were Rich, written by Romeo, a second grader at Nash Elementary. Come on, let's go to the book fair. Ooh, I've got a list of books I'm going to get. My mom gave me $20. Wow, lucky. I only have $10. Hey, Romeo, are you and your brothers going to the book fair? Uh, not this time. Uh, See you tomorrow. Come on, let's go home. I wish we were rich. With money. Me, my brother, and my other brother would share... Here you go, $20 for you, $20 for you, and $20 for me. Awesome, thanks. Thanks. We, we would buy toys. I'm buying Legos. What set do you like, Star Wars or uh, Harry Potter? Harry Potter! I'll get a bat and a baseball so we can play. I'll use mine for the mitts. We would buy drinks and food because we're thirsty and hungry. Tacos or pizza? Pizza! Pizza! And uh, lemonade. You got it. We would buy books from the book fair. Can I have Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Captain Underpants for me. I'll buy the entire Harry Potter series, please. Here's your change. Enjoy your books. Would you read them to us? Of course. We'll start tonight. And I would buy a new house for my mom and dad. Mom, Dad, look what I bought for us. A new house with five bedrooms. Oh, and an extra room for Grandma. And a pool. Oh, my dear son, you are the best. Thank you. You're welcome, Mom. Thank you, Romeo. This is amazing. I always knew you would take care of us. You're welcome, Dad. Time for dinner. Coming, Mom. Let's go. Wash your hands and help set the table, boys. Your mom made spaghetti for us tonight. I'll get the water cups. Mm, It smells delicious, Mom. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, dear. You're welcome. Romeo, please get your grandmother from the couch and help her to the table. Of course, Dad. Come on, Grandma. It's time to eat. 
Let us be grateful for this food, for our family, and for this moment together. Amen. 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 That's what we would do if we were rich with money. The end. That story was written by Romeo, a second grader at Nash Elementary in the Amphi School District. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar. In August, Stories That Soar was one of 14 literacy programs in the entire world to be recognized with an award from the Library of Congress. They were chosen as a best practices honoree for promoting literacy using innovative methods. Interested student-age writers can feed their stories to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. In the 1890s, the Neal family was one of the wealthiest self-made families in the Tucson region. That was no small feat considering that the Neals were black, living in a region where less than one-half of one percent of the population identified as any race other than Caucasian. Curly and Annie Neal owned the luxurious Mountain View Hotel in Oracle. And this is their story, produced by Nina Shelton with narration by Tony Perkins. The Mountain View Hotel at Oracle was formally opened by a grand ball. At midnight, supper was served. And what a grand supper it was. The dancing and hilarity continued until 5 o'clock in the morning when the party dispersed, having spent a most enjoyable evening wishing Mr. and Mrs. Neal success in their new undertaking. That was from an 1895 article in the Arizona Weekly Citizen. Barbara Marriott, Ph.D., is an historian and the author of Annie's Guests, Tales from a Frontier Hotel. The Mountain View was a very special hotel in its time, and it was something that was a bit of a phenomenon. You would first see the hotel if you were coming from Tucson, which just about everybody did. You, uh, you would go up the hill, and as you came down, there was this absolutely unbelievable sight. So it was very dramatic and dynamic for the period, for the time. The hotel was just one of the most beautiful buildings in southern Arizona that wasn't in a big city. I mean, we're talking about a gorgeous building out in the middle of this beautiful country. That was Chuck Sternberg curator of the Oracle Historical Society. Next, we'll hear Bernard Wilson, a black history enthusiast who is the author of The Black Residents of Tucson and Their Achievements, 1860 to 1900. The Mountain View Hotel during its heyday had uh, a lot of visitors here. Uh, these were generally people of notoriety. Buffalo Bill was the most famous at the Mountain View. Grady Gamage came here, who ended up being the president of ASU and the stewards. And Lavinia Stewart ended up giving all the money for the observatory at the university. As its name became known, its fame spread really literally throughout the world. They began getting international people, a couple ambassadors stayed there. You had a Russian princess, you had Italian countesses. You had famous writers. 
You had the man who wrote The Mind with the Iron Door, Harold Bell Wright, who was the most famous author in the United States at the time. So it was not just a little out of the way in that people came to, it was very, very well known. But what about the proprietors of this notable hotel? Who was behind this beautiful and famous destination in this rugged landscape? The year was 1895, and the Arizona Daily Citizen had this to say about the owners. Monica Lane, the owner and operator of the Clifton Hotel in Tucson since 2015, reads an excerpt. Mr. and Mrs. Neal have been residents of Tucson for the past 17 years, where for all that time, Mr. Neal is one of the foremost and most progressive citizens we have, true as steel and a man whose word is as good as bond. Mrs. Neal is one of the most charming, genial, and appreciative landladies who understands how to perform the difficult art of providing the best accommodations. This is wild. This is crazy. This is, this is a black man on this page. <laughs> I'm like, they wrote that in the newspaper? William and Annie Neal started from humble beginnings, a self-made man and woman whose success came despite many barriers. William Neal was born in Oklahoma. He was raised in the Oklahoma Territory by the Native Americans. His father was black and his mother was Cherokee Indian. And Curly left home, went to live with an aunt, and used to work in the railroad station. He met Buffalo Bill there, as a matter of fact, and joined Buffalo Bill as a scout. And they, uh, eventually he went off on his own as a scout, but he remained friends with William Cody for, for just ever, ever, for the two of them. He was a very energetic man, an, an entrepreneur. He was uh, to, got a contract from the Postal Service. He also became, um, he opened his own stable in Tucson. And so he was just constantly doing very successful businesses, even to create this hotel. In the 18, late 1880s, early 1890s, the most lucrative business was freighting. But Curly Neal probably was the most prominent freighter in the area during that particular period of time. Curly and Annie Neal met at her mother's boarding house. Curly and Annie both were born on the reservation in Oklahoma, so they had a lot in common. Annie had a lot of Native American in her, but yet towards the end of, oh, I'd say about 1920s, she was viewed as a black woman. Annie was a mulatto, as it's called. Her parents were uh, Hannah Box and Wiley Box. He was perceived by others as being a Negro, and his wife was perceived as being a Negro. But they shied away from it, didn't talk about it, but the records show a mixed-race family. Annie and her mother and father arrived in the covered wagon. Uh, her mother and father put Annie in St. Joseph's Academy. So that's where she got her, if you want to call it, refinement. And she really was. Annie was a lady, very refined, six feet tall, 
very gracious and very beautiful. And she was the contrast. Because although she had this refinement, although she was very, very personable, she was a pioneer woman, she could outride and outshoot and did on many occasions Buffalo Bill. I mean, that's going someone who could do that. In 1890, some doctors said Oracle had the best climate for people with tuberculosis, so they turned the Acadia into a health resort. One third of the world's population suffered from consumption during these years, and Oracle was a prime place for its good climate and healthy living. William Curley Neal had the stage route to Mammoth and brought the gold out of the Mammoth mines and had the post office route. And he had to go through Oracle and he noticed that the Acadia Health Resort was doing very well. And so he built the Mountain View Hotel. The story goes is that his mother-in-law passed away and his wife, she was very depressed about it, didn't want to get out of bed, and then he realized what would do it. He realized that he would start building a hotel. He knew this would get her out of bed, and it did. The hotel, because it was so luxurious, and because it had everything in it that Annie wanted, cost around $90,000, which in those days, I'm talking about 1890, I mean, come on. Which equates to about uh, $2.8 million in today's value. The Mountain View at that time, in comparison with the hotels that were available in the Tucson area, just absolutely outshone them. First of all, it had a wine cellar, which was quite interesting and innovative. And most amazing for the time, at the end of each hallway on each floor was a bathroom with hot and cold running water. And he always ran a full entertainment plate. Outside was a croquet court, and off in the back was a golf course. She also, for every holiday, managed to have a great big party and invite all the town of Oracle. She was really into a lot of festivities. So there's one big happy family up there because of Annie Neal. In 2020, I was often asked how it feels to be, you know, the only black female hotel owner, the first female uh, black female hotel owner. And it's, it's nice, it's inspiring to actually realized I wasn't the first to be connected um, to my place and um, my people for that long a period of time and um, I think through my career particularly as a hotel owner and operator um, is something that I think a lot of black people don't get to experience and particularly here in southern Arizona or out in the west. So Annie Neal was very gracious. Every story I've ever heard about her was just how wonderful she was. For one thing, she really loved young people and um, she was the godmother to a lot of, uh, of the kids in town. But over time, and I'm not really sure why, but over time she was very much involved in the community, but at some period of time she was sort of shunned, possibly because she was black, I'm not really sure. But it didn't seem to happen right away. It seemed to happen as more people moved in from other parts of the country. 
The other thing that happened to the mountain view is that Curly got into a long, dragged out, very expensive legal fight. As I said, he was stubborn and he was accused of cutting down more trees than he should by the man who owned the other hotel in Oracle. <laughs> and so he kept, he wouldn't pay the fine. He sued and sued and sued and sued, and that ate into his financial situation. So Curly had less money. The Biltmores came in, El Conquistador came in. They had unlimited funds, and they also had the advantage of being more modern and bigger and offering more facilities. That took away part of the population. And Annie and Curly, who had been the social leaders, especially Annie, had been the social leaders in Oracle, and now they found themselves on the outside. It was interesting that whenever there was a card party or a dinner or something that was strictly for charity and that you had to pay money to attend and contribute to, or the knock on the door and can you help, they were at the Mountain View. People were knocking on the door. They were calling on Curly and Annie and saying, we need X amount of dollars for the church or for the Red Cross or for whatever was going on. But when it came to social activities, Curly and Annie were not invited. And that then began to put the Mountain View in a category that was not considered to be the place to go to. So my impression is, is that around World War I, the heyday was kind of over. Curly Neal died from a car accident. A car rolled on top of him in 1936. And that was also the same year that she sold the place. Annie now lived on after that for quite a few years, and she lived in the Mountain View. And she lived until 1950. At the end, it was kind of a sad situation. Uh, she no longer had any social position, although she was dearly loved by some of the old timers. The hotel only had two guests, if you want to call them guests, two old miners, and of course it was in disrepair. And uh, that was the end of the Mountain View, and that was the end of Annie. More than 120 years later, the Mountain View still stands today, providing a semblance of its former glory. Long gone are its sweeping two-story verandas, fine decor and throngs of impressed visitors. A church chapel was added in the 1950s and it continues to be used by a small group of worshipers. But much of the structure of the original building is unsound and remains unused, fading examples of its previous splendor. That Look Back was produced by Nina Shelton and narrated by Tony Perkins. It featured historian and author Barbara Marriott, Chuck Sternberg, curator with the Oracle Historical Society, author Bernard Wilson, and Monica Lane, owner and operator of the Clifton Hotel. You can watch the video version of that story right now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.